This podcast is brought to you by sarahraven.com, which is home to everything you need for a truly beautiful and productive garden. You'll also find great and essential gardening kit and stylish, lovely things to have in your house to bring the outside indoors, all inspired by the garden and the house being tied together. There's also plenty of garden inspiration, how-to videos and specialist growing guides. So head over to sarahraven.com today to discover even more. Welcome to Grow Cookie to Range, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven. And today I am rejoined by the wonderful Arthur Parkinson, who used to be my co-host, so to speak. And the good news is that Arthur is finished writing one of his two books that he had to do this year. And so he's able to join us again much more often, which is such good news. And so welcome back, Arthur. It's lovely to have you uh, back on the podcast. Thank you for having me back, fluttering <laughs> back in. And you've been doing so well holding. I've been listening, of course, and you, you're amazing. You don't need me back, so I'm very grateful you're having me back a little bit more. Oh, no, of course I need you back. And of course, all our listeners have missed you very, very much. So I thought it was a really good thing to kind of re-release you in a way, which is to talk about what you've been doing, which is writing another fantastic book. And so I just wanted to chat to Arthur about his new book called The Flower Yard, Planting a Paradise. So it's sort of linked to his last book. Well, last but one book, actually, because there's been a hen book in between. But Planting a Paradise, A Year of Pots and Pollinators is Arthur's new book. And I've uh, been lucky enough to be sent an early copy. So I've uh, read it and looked at it. And all the photographs, as always, are by Arthur. But the thing that for me was really exciting kind of development about this book is that it's got lots of Arthur's drawings. And any of you who've seen uh, Chicken Boy, his, his latest book that came out in the spring which is about his uh, other mutual love, which is hens. There are really fantastically characterful, beautiful, eccentric in some, you know, some cases, but just so uh, resonant drawings of every type of hen. And in this book, Planting a Paradise, there are lots and lots of drawings of insects and butterflies. So tell us about your why you love drawing so much, Arthur. I think I feel quite confident drawing much more so than writing and it's the same with photography the the writing I mean I've been lucky enough you've you've edited a lot of my stuff before it's gone to publishers and things because it's not my forte I think it borders on dyslexia but when it comes to pen and paper trying to get in in this case butterflies and and moths to look like how I see them I'm I'm, I quite like doing that I find it quite therapeutic Mm. And um, what was funny was the illustrations weren't going to be in this book. They weren't part of the initial conversation at all. This book was just going to be a journal. And I don't do journals. I don't, I don't keep a diary. I don't even go to the supermarket with a list of things to buy. Mm. Um, so w- when they came to me and said, we want to do a journal, I said, well, I, I, I can't do a journal, but I'll I'll try and write something that's, you know, a little bit of an update from the flower yard. So mm. the the drawings came in at, right at the end. Actually, they'd sent me the first, I think the the final draft. And I don't know, they'd put these little like word art things on the page on some of the pages. I said, I don't like those. Can I can I draw some butterflies? Mm. So I today quickly draw butterflies. 
and that was that was quite nice because um, butterflies are hard to photograph. You know, you can spend hours uh, trying to photograph them, and yeah. even if you do get one land close enough to you, you can guarantee it won't open up to show its colourful side. Yeah. Just get brown brown wings. Yeah, so <laughs> um, true. Yeah, so um, it was quite nice, you know, drawing over a weekend my my favourite varieties of, of butterflies and, and moths. And um, I'm just looking at at one of the pages with drawings on them. And and what's really good is exactly as you say, you've got it sort of with the wings fully spread so that you really see the pattern, but then you've also got it shut. And of Mm. course, with a photograph, you would never get those two inches together. And so I guess I really want to learn our British butterflies, particularly the common ones. I mean, I know the very common ones, but we've actually had more butterflies in our garden here at Perchill this year than ever before, which is so surprising because July was so wet. But um, yeah, it's it, th- these would be a very, very good way of learning them. So I hope you might move on and do a whole book just on butterflies, Arthur, with your illustrations. <laughs> Maybe one day. I've been trying to draw bees, but you know, for every bee that's a success, there's eleven that just look like wasps or flies. Bees, uh, I find very hard because they've got they've just got a big, huge black eye, really. Yeah. Yes. And. Um, it's really hard to make them seem as cuddly as they appear to us in real life. So, um, yeah, I'm trying trying to do bees at the moment. <laughs> yeah, good. But, I, I mean, going on about the illustrations as, you know, continuing that conversation, I mean, the thing that is so wonderful about this book is there are just incredible pictures of pollinators. So there's barely a spread without a butterfly or a bee on it. And in it, and um, I mean, just talk about why they are just so important to you. Just sort of tell us a bit of why they mean so much. I think there's a big conscience consciousness now of 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 having these insects in the garden. I mean, what what's funny is, obviously, I you know, as little when you're little, you're interested in worms and things. But I mean, I talk about in the book my garden training, and I I was a bit geeky then with with wildlife and insects and. I remember being told you've got to, you know, be more interested in in gardening really than than mm. wildlife, which I think is a massive mistake. I think, um, you know, they're like jewels, and the wonderful thing is, they will come to a garden wherever it is. So it doesn't matter whether you've got a garden in like prime real estate of countryside England, or whether you've got a little balcony in a in a really, you know, somewhere that's very urban. They will find you, and I think there's a wonderful mm. sense of reward. I mean, I spend far too much time. Anyone who follows me on Instagram will know sharing a lot of doom and gloom news. So I do need to feel that there's hope. And I think, I think they give, give us all hope. Like you've just said, you know, you've seen more butterflies at Perch Hill this year. It's mm. instant Prozac. Yeah. Particularly, you know, the first one. And it's wonderful. You know, if you're growing something from seed, like, um, I've got your gorgeous calendar on my mum's wall. And at this month, it's the claret sunflower with three beautiful honeybees, like a crescent moon in its lovely face. And so, um, I mean, when they asked me to do this book, I wasn't really ready to do another gardening book. So I had to go through endless memory cards to try and find over the years, various photographs. Mm. So, um, it was, it was nice really to, you know, look up all the varieties. So you open the book and there's the blue Bayou Dahlia with the red admiral, which I know at this time you're at Perch Hill, you know, you'll walk down your path in the cutting garden and it's, it's always alive with red admirals. They love that Dahlia. 
It's extraordinary that, isn't it? I, I, I was down there yesterday and I, I just couldn't believe that. I mean, there were six or seven red admirals on that avenue of blue bayou. It is amazing. Mm. And I mean, I've just, I've just opened onto a spread in autumn because of course we're in autumn now in the new book. And there's this absolutely beautiful feast for the eyes, which is a whole load of dahlias. And every single one bar Verone's obsidian, in fact, has, has a bee or a butterfly on it. And that's one of the things that I've noticed with you over the years is when you're photographing, you, you take the time to wait for the bees or butterflies to return. Cause I mean, I'm too impatient. So I've sort of moved on. I can't just stay in one place, but Mm. I mean, it is, it's incredible. The, the detail of which plants are good for bees and, and butterflies and then getting the photographs. I mean, our regular listeners will know which are the dahlia varieties at this time of year, which is so good for pollinators. But will you just recap on that? Yeah. So, um, I mean, all of the bishops, really, if, if bishop is in the name, it will be will be good for them. But increasingly, the anemone varieties that you're so passionate about, and yeah. it's wonderful to see them so involved in your breeding programmes. Because not only are they good for pollinators, they also, as a rule, very good for being in pots. Yes. I mean, this year I've got Rosie Raven, who's very happy and in not a massive pot, actually. And I've combined her with um, Cosmos Bright Lights. Yes. And they're both very, very happy. Whereas, you know, a lot of the bigger dailies just don't like being in pots. So this book, I did throw out a lot of the larger daily varieties and focus on the smaller. I mean, my favorite combination in terms of height would be. Bishop of Auckland, that lovely classic claret mm. with waltzing Matilda, which is slightly shorter. So you, you know, I think it's it's really important to get a wedding cake tier of flowers. Yeah. And you know, if you're on a budget, you can't beat Bishop's children. I was in a garden a few weeks ago, and it was, it was alive with butterflies and bees in, in the most jammy, gorgeous colours you could wish for. So yeah, absolutely. So sort of moving on to another theme in the book, away from pollinators, is about birds. And mm. one of the things that I, I, I really sort of felt came over very strongly was about the importance of hedges, even in a small garden, and the importance of, of, of thinking about, you know, whether it be perhaps a fruiting a crab apple or something in a pot. So your container gardening being the theme, but also hedges around the garden, even however small it is, being incredibly important. So Will you chat to us about that? Yeah, I mean, this, this book's really caught me in kind of, and I think you, you're changing as well as I diversify the garden more and more into shrubs. And, yeah. you know, I want structure in the winter. I don't just want, you know, annuals. That means there's nothing in the garden. And I want the garden to feel enclosed. And the wonderful thing about hedges is they will bring in the birds. I mean, it's all they well having a bird feeder, but you do need the cover to encourage them in. Yeah. You know, you need your fences with with climbers and, and hedges are just so beautiful. I mean, my mum loved hedges and, you know, she'd take us walks and she still to this day gets upset because she knows all the hedges in the town. If one suddenly vanishes, she will, she mentions it and she gets very, very upset. And it's so true. Mm. You know, hedges, hedges do bring in, you know, a huge amount of biodiversity. Yes. And, and hedgehogs, I think, you know, people, there's so much talk about tree planting, isn't there? But mm. hedges in many ways are, are just as biodiversity rich as, if not more so in towns. So, it was important to me, you know, there's a jitty in Hucknall where I'm from that I've walked up and down since I was little. So I've, you know, getting a double page spread of that was important to me just to kind of I'd make them stand out rather than just mentioning them. I mean, I wish there were more photos of hedges in the book, 
maybe that's a book I need to do, go around the country taking photographs of hedges. I do think hedges are going to be increasingly important. And I think people, I mean, you know, the government are actually on a massive hedge planting campaign for farmers. But as gardeners, mm. I mean, Adam, who's working on this bird book, has has been trying to persuade me that that every garden should give at least a bit of its surface area over to either a shrubbery, not in the kind of heavy Edwardian sort of dark sense of, I don't know. No rhododendron land. Exactly. But literally it could even be just willows, saplings just planted because it just brings in just Mm. such incredible biodiversity of all types but he's particularly into his birds at the moment yeah but you know all the way through to the invertebrates just having an area that isn't preened and isn't just purely ornamental it can be ornamental but it adds a whole dimension to the garden and and particularly will really help the garden bird population and Mm. so will help that movement in the garden which butterflies give you of course too don't they yeah, and I, I have to say this year, I mean, I've not I've not frantically gardened this year. I've been a bit in between homes and it's all been a bit topsy-turvy, but my biggest enjoyment is the bird bath in, in our garden. It's it's literally, I used to keep birds, you know, like cage birds, but honestly, this bird bath this summer, it's it's been literally like having an aviary in, in mm. outside. You know, I look outside, it, I've, I've had to probably refresh it and clean it three times some days because all the fledglings, they have to be able to bath when they've left the nests because, you know, bird nests often are, are quite mighty. If they can't bathe, you know, they get poorly and the adults need to keep clean too. So we get families of goldfinches coming and, and they're like little parrots, you know, the little fledglings are just getting that lemon yellow on the wings and, and the parents are there. And so I, I, we haven't been feeding the birds over the summer. I know a lot of people do, but I'm quite conscious about squirrels. Yes. But I have to say the bird bath, I think, has attracted just as many birds. Oh, that's such a good tip. Yeah. And in your book, there are pictures of that, I mean, photographs. And it, I like the way you've got it high because mm. we've got bird bars at ground level. But actually by having it high outside the window, it means you kind of, it's in your eye view more, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I think I think if you've got space, I've, I've one on the ground because that mm. way, if you've got hedgehogs visiting, they can have a, a wallow at night. But it's it's just about thinking about different species requirements, you know, just like an aviary. If you had an aviary, you'd have quail on the ground and, and some birds that like to be on the ground and then other birds don't like to go on the ground. So if you've got tables and things, have, have both and then you will be able to attract a greater variety of, of birds. Yeah. yeah, great. So I, I think that's such a good prod to us all is if you're wary of rats or squirrels or whatever mm. um, and feeding the birds but then a bird bath is is not going to do anyone any harm and washing them and changing them and filling them up very regularly yeah uh, we're, we're we're hitting a very sort of hot spell late mm. in the year and so and that's going to be important and funnily enough i've just been in holland and one of the things that we notice driving on the motorways or quite big roads is you're on uh, the carriage going north and there's a massive hedge between you and the carriage going south. And so I don't know why we don't have that. I mean, maybe it's to do with visibility Health and, and safety. <laughs> well, but then Adam and I were talking about this. It's just like, why do you need to see the, the, the traffic coming the other direction? Yeah. And I mean, it's true that I'm not sure if, if I was a sparrow, I'd want to be feasting on Cotoni berries in a hedge in the middle of a motorway. But at night you would, wouldn't you, when it was mm. quiet? And so, yeah, they, they were just absolutely dense with hawthorn, 
I imagine, wild hops and then loads of buried stuff, so loads of cotoneaster, etc. And wow. they just created this whole environment, as well as the roadsides being left quite wild. Uh, they had these big, big hedges. And I thought that was quite an exciting idea, uh, going back to our whole hedge thing. I mean, I, we, we're planting huge uh, numbers of hedge plants here this autumn. And as we go into autumn, of course, it's exactly the time to do it. And it's been Adam's great campaign. And yeah, I just I just think it is such an easy way of kind of rewilding the garden in an ornamental way. That's an, another thing that you talk about quite a bit in the book. So we could sort of move on to that. Yeah, the wilding, the, the wilding, wilding thing. thing. There's just, yeah. I mean, it, this this year, you know, it's just been such a confusing term. I mean, I've always, I've always liked wilding and never really found the idea of it threatening, because mm. in a way. Although wilding is not being in control and gardening has been in control, the ethos of wilding is exactly what me and you have always felt a garden should be. It shouldn't be completely human dominated. And in a way, I know, you know, you're planting style in the host. Of course, it's controlled, but mm. it is, it's plant, it's plant relaxation, isn't it? Whereas, yes. you know, traditional British gardening is, is dot planting. It is just, you know, bedding plants and low and tight and clipped and, and it's it's really interesting seeing the generations changing in gardening. And, you know, I've been a bit dismayed by comments made about wilding because we're up against, you know, things like high street stores now selling rolls of astroturf, plastic yeah. hanging baskets. To me, I find that much more threatening of becoming a culture than, you know, people who are lucky enough to have large gardens or estates wilding. I don't mind what they do there. I think we just mm. need to encourage more loose fashions in in urban gardens in particular yeah. um, where people have a lot less inspiration than maybe people who are in the countryside yeah, um, yeah yeah it's true and so what are your i don't know top two or three plants a sort of almost wild but that you mm. would encourage into the garden yeah well I, I just think you know i think marjoram is just fantastic yeah. it's such a wonderful happy plant in a pot you know you could have that in mm. a window box you don't even need to cut it back if you're really lazy and it will, you know, bush up beautifully. You know, it's wonderful for the bees and butterflies and this lovely pink and purple. It doesn't get too big. It's not going to go everywhere. Similarly, you know, just, just classics like Verbena bonariensis. Mm. You know, they all mm. are just very, very easy. Just, just get them in and they, they thrive on poor soil. And to be honest, a plant that I haven't mentioned in the book that, but one that I've seen walking around my hometown this summer are, are the fuchsias. And yes. they look so beautiful against red brick and the mm. honeybees and bumblebees absolutely love them. So I, I really want to look at what these fuchsias are because they're clearly, you know, common varieties, but mm. they must really love it in a town microclimate because they're again, like, like mini hedges, but they look so beautiful mm. and they're always planted in the most barren, tiny little terrace gardens in little yes. bits of concrete cracks. Yes. Um, so very out of fashion for me, but you know, it's amazing when you walk around what plants suddenly go, Oh, actually that looks really amazing. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um so so maybe we could sort of chat to finish, you know, I mean there's quite a lot to chat about in this bit, but I love the section in the book which is 
what every flower yard needs. Oh yeah. And I wondered if you'd <laughs> talk us through that. And then but maybe we'll start with the more negative, what every flower yard doesn't need. Yeah. And uh, you know, perhaps we could come on to glyphosate with this. And um okay. Arthur uses the F word in the book, which made me laugh quite a lot because I've never <laughs> I've never tried using the F word in the book. I had several battles on that. Did you? <laughs> well, will you chat about that? And then we'll we'll do the negative first and then we'll finish with the positive. Well, I I had an experience with someone. I was living in, in a friend's house for a time and she has a, her entire drive glycophated um, quite mm. regularly by a, by a guy who comes around. And he was very um, pleased with himself that he'd got permission to do it because I think he, he'd been told that I was, you know, a hippie or something. And um, yeah. I said, well, well, do you know it's going to give, you know, going to probably give you cancer? And his reaction was, I'm 77, it doesn't matter. And I, I kind of had to just shut the door on this man, I think, rather than say anything back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah the, the reason I'm, I'm so upset about the glyphosate thing is it, it's proven to be so damaging, not only for, for the planet, but for our health and our, yeah. you know, our children's health. So when I see them spraying, you know, around hospitals and schools, it just, it's just mm. absolute, it's, it's the devil. Yeah. And I, I'd, again, go back to my garden training. I remember being told, well, no one will employ you if you don't get a spraying certificate. You yeah. need this spraying 70%. You know, they weren't bothered about me being interested in plants. It was like, well, if you don't do this, you can't be a gardener. And I knew it was wrong. I, I thought, I don't want that chemical strapped on my back spraying away. No. Um, so that's why I'm so passionate about glyphosate. And I probably read far too many reports. But, you know, I know you do as well. And I know you've had the whole, you know, you've had awful experiences with, with herbicide contamination, haven't you, at Perch Hill? It really is. We have, You know, yeah. these chemicals, we need to... They need to get tougher on them, and I think it's only by individual action that that will happen because the governments aren't aren't being fast enough about it. No, so by by speaking, speaking, speaking about it, um, yeah, I, I I completely agree. And um, in terms of the aesthetics, there there's there's a <laughs> couple of the ones that made me laugh. Well, so do you what, agree with them? I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so your main one is dustbins. So what you say quite rightly is if you've got, if, particularly if you've got a small garden or a yard, why on earth would you give two thirds of it over to dustbins and sort of somehow find a way? I mean, of course, not everyone can, but trying to kind of get rid of the dustbin or anyway, yeah, talk us a bit through that, how you, how, how you suggest we deal with the dustbin phenomenon. One Probably my favourite photo in the book involves a dustbin and it's it's where my mum keeps hers, but because mm. we've got Vipers blue gloss, which is that wonderful biennial wildflower, which is very tough. Yeah. Um, it's self-seeded in all the cracks. And so you've got the dustbin and it's just surrounded by a lovely blue haze yeah. and caper spurge as well as self-seeded too. But yeah, I mean, I think my mum in her little flower yard gardens, she's got four dustbins and she's on her own. So it's like every photo I take in, in that yard now, I have a background of, of dustbins, which is... It's not something you have to think about if you've got a big garden. And, yeah. you know, I find it so sad. Some of these new builds, the dustbins are literally by the front door. You know, yeah. what would have been a little flower bed is is dustbin land. Yeah. So I don't have any easy answers for dustbins, but I, I thought it was nice to include a photo of a dustbin in a, in a garden book because you just don't see them, do you? No, um, you don't. No. And it is that thing of rather than, I don't know, you see them sort of covered with, with a kind of netting to make it look like a flower or a painting. I think and they actually, make them look worse. Yeah. It, sort of, they sort of draw attention to themselves like too much makeup. Yeah. Whereas your idea of, of having self-seeders all round, like it could be teasels or, as you say, Viper's Bugloss and 
and Caper Spurge and Aridron, Kavinsky, you know, they don't they need to be just softened, don't they? Yeah. Anyway, to end on a positive, what are the things that you feel every flower yard needs? Well, you've already said a bird bath, but mm. I love this list, um, which includes weathered garden tables, which is something that I'm forever screeching to a halt when I see a sort of uh, one of those brocant style, mm. uh, not antique shops, but sort of bric-a-brac shops and getting particularly metal ones because obviously it doesn't matter if they stay out all winter. Mm. And that's just so great for raising pots and giving them a stage. But but talk us through the other things that you think every flower yard needs. Well, the, my biggest comfort is the washing line. And I know yeah. you've got, you know, you've got a mass, you have a massive washing line after all the open days, don't you? I love it when you do an Instagram of all the aprons and tea towels and God knows what else up on your washing line. And I, I, I love having the washing out in the garden. And I love that every house used to have a washing line, didn't they? Yeah. And you don't, you know, they've kind of disappeared, which I find, again, scary because how are we drying our clothes in these, you know, what often are little houses? Yeah. You know, get get them out on washing on your washing lines. And as <laughs> as ever with Arthur, it's it's full of really good practical tips. So he says, I like the old wooden pegs, but keep these nice and dry over the winter as otherwise they start to rot and the wetness of them stains your clothes. That's so true. <laughs> it's like I put out my first lot of sheets in the spring and they're all got these black marks yeah. on them where where I just haven't taken care. So then I moved to plastic, but I hated them. So now I'm I know, actually... and then the sunshine gets through the plastic and makes them brittle. So then they yeah. shatter everywhere and you're spending uh, your time collecting them up. I've got ones that look like sort of paper clips now that are metal, but I oh. actually just, I chuck them in the dishwasher in the, in the cutlery bit and, and oh, every so idea. often. Yeah. And they work, they seem to work fine. <laughs> and then the, the other one is, Obviously a water butt, so let's just chat about that. Yeah, I mean, that's a massive, if you could try and, you know, design a beautiful water butt, I think you'd be onto mm. a winner there because I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't found one that I want to invest in for a small garden or rather, you know, the person I, I live with won't <laughs> won't mm. allow me to try and have a Cretan urn, you know, yeah. imposter. That I mean, yeah. some of them look all right, but, and, and you can get the old whiskey barrels. I've seen those for sale. They have taps in, but, you know, it would be lovely to sort of, I don't know, it's its a difficult one because, again, in a small garden, they do take up a big space, but I just felt so guilty this, was it June, we had no rain? Yes. You know, the amount yeah. of water I was using, it, it, I, I just I just thought this this isn't, you know, when you switch on the news, no rain next week. Yes, and yes. And yeah. it just doesn't feel right anymore. It's one of the reasons I'm switching increasingly to herbs. You know, yeah. I just don't want to feel that I'm, if we are suddenly in drought, that I'm not doing my bit for the environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So final, again, a typically practical tip from Arthur is about the right sort of brush you need for your oh, flower yeah. yard. <laughs> I love this. So tell us what, what sort of brush we need. A goat hair brush. Oh, tell us about it. <laughs> because it doesn't sweep out all your lovely seedlings like a brittle one does. And yeah. it's much more, it's just nice to use. I I mean, it is, it's, it's funny. You are your tools, aren't you? I mean, the yeah. wrong brush just makes brushing a, a yard or, or, you know, a patch area hard work. But this goat brush, I think I got it a few years ago and I, I love it. It's my favorite thing. It's quite mm. therapeutic to brush, you know, brush around your beds and things. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I want the panicum and the little violas if they've self-seeded to not be dislodged. So this is very gentle, but it's still, you know, it's quite powerful. Very good. <laughs> oh, Arthur, there's so much more we could talk about, but um, it's a beautiful book, fantastic photographs and drawings by Arthur 
Planting in Paradise. Uh, what when's it out? I think it's out. It's like- out in October. I think it's the the twelfth of October. I think. Okay, yeah. so yeah, lovely to talk, Arthur. And thank you. Uh, lovely to talk to. You'll be back much more regularly in 2024. So how nice is that for all of us? Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Oh, thanks so much for listening to me and Arthur chatting about his new book that's out just now. And actually next week, he's coming back to chat with me again. And we're going to talk about our highlights of our Christmas range and the things that we've both selected that we're going to be using to decorate our homes this Christmas. See you then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes we talk about on this podcast by heading to the show notes or at sarahraven.com forward slash podcast.